back to the State of Sports Media, brought to you by Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Looking forward to talking about Sports Illustrated today. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll dig into the old grandmother, I suppose, in some ways, of the sports media world. Um, I like that. Uh, but before we do, what have you been paying attention to this week? I had two things on my list. One was Brooks Kepka, who you love. Let, let me hear let me hear how you feel about Brooks Kepka. <laughs> you know, I let me be clear here. I want to give all these guys the benefit of the doubt. But yep. um I and so in that mindset there's a guy um moderate to highly annoying YouTuber who does things with celebrities who made his name play Ultimate Frisbee and so I kind of have a soft spot for him. Uh, and he did a, a like a mini putt putt thing sponsored by Nike with Brooks, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, I'm gonna watch this in the hopes that I'm gonna find he has more personality than I think, and I was mm-hmm. uh, not uh, not impressed. Yeah, uh, it was about exactly what I thought. Yeah, and uh, incredibly dominant performance, and yet. I found myself rooting for Dustin Johnson of all people to come back and beat him, which if you know me, you know I hate Dustin Johnson too. So Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird space to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't wanna overstate anything because I think in golf, uh overstating things it doesn't usually end well or or, or it doesn't mean much to overstate something in, in the golf world. And what I mean by that is there's such a variety and diversity in talent right now. And the future of the game is so unpredictable. But I feel like with the dominance of Brooks Kepka and that Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka are the one and two player in the world, uh, we really truly might be finally seeing the consequences of what Tiger Woods did to the game. Hmm. And that might mean that this is the game now. And if it changes, it will necessitate major institutional and structural changes, I think. Uh, if, if, if for some reason, in some way, we decide that this is not the golf that we want to watch and partake in, then uh, it'll, it'll take some, some real elbow grease to, to make that happen. But it's, from my perspective, it's like, oh, this is what golf is now. Um, if you can hit fairways at three ten plus and make some putts, then you're going to win and you're going to win the hardest tournaments. Uh, so in that way, it's like, I'm so conflicted of like, I respect it. Like everyone had the same chance on Thursday morning, you know, and, and Brooks outlasted everybody and he's done it four times now on four very difficult golf courses and majors. And so part of me is like, okay, <laughs> Like, you, you did it, no one else did it. Uh, and I like that sort of meritocracy of golf in, in that way, but obviously it's not that straightforward. But at any rate, it's his his lack of uh, entertaining personality makes it harder to root for him. But I, I still can't deny that I have a, a certain amount of massive respect for it. Well, it's, you know, I found myself watching it in the same way that I used, I remember watching Tiger and that, Brooks would hit it in the rough, and you're like, well, it doesn't matter. Yep. He's going to get up and down, and it'll be fine. Um, yeah. And I will say, it really brings into question, I think, and we've already seen this, that, you know, I think we 
we lionize Beth Page. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But reality is, it's a boring course because it's so long. Um, more exciting courses are courses like St. Andrews, I think, where you have these risk rewards where people can go long, but they can get really punished for it, or they can go, you know, somebody like Zach Johnson who can't hit the ball. It seems like a hundred yards compared to these guys uh, still yep. stands a chance because he can play super structured golf and to find those kind of differences, I think is important. It's part of what, you know, the masters is a hugely complicated thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as long as the masters is, I still feel like it's a very gettable course for anybody. I think that's part of what makes it, mm-hmm. it's very difficult, but you can have different kinds of golfers win on that course, which is intriguing to me. Yeah. That makes me think of the, uh, I don't know if it was the first, I, I think it was the time that Tiger won the Masters by like 12 or something like that. Uh, but he was hitting eight irons into 13, the par mm-hmm. five. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that being kind of like the moment that always stands out in my mind of like, oh, that that changes everything. And that's what I mean, I think, when I see when I say that this is the culmination of that. And so Brooks Kepka made Beth Page boring. And I, I think historically Beth Page like didn't wasn't boring. I think it's boring now because of what technology and the changing nature of the game has been. But there's also this part of me of like Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson are exceptional athletes. Like they they are like truly physical specimens and so if golf needs to catch up with athleticism of the talent then that's where i'm like what would the structural changes look like to make this interesting again and i think that's where i don't want to completely give up on it yet um that is not Hmm. to say that he's still very boring (laughs) well it is it reminds me of the question when nascar was in its heyday and we saw all these drivers all of a sudden start treating it like a sport in many ways mm-hmm. where they were getting, you know, doing training and brain training and all other kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden I feel like that was, that made it less interesting. And we talk about Jimmy Johnson as a boring yeah. champion. Um, and so it's interesting that line between like, you know, we want these sh- schmoes, we, the, these endearing schmoes to be able to win. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, as soon as there becomes more money in it, that's not going to be what happens anymore. Right. Yeah. And it, it, there was a moment in the coverage where Nick Faldo, you, you may have caught it. He he said something along the lines of, I never lifted a weight in my life uh, mm-hmm. because that was the conventional wisdom. And I think it was Gary McCord or someone that like, called him out and they were like, maybe you should have. <laughs> Which was like a, a an interesting moment for me. It, it was like, I don't want to watch old white fat guys play the game. Um, and so if there is a possibility for golf to open up to a more athletic personality and not just someone with really good hand-eye coordination, like what does that mean for the game and how we look at it? And there's some part of it that makes me think that that actually brings in uh, a whole nother clientele maybe. Maybe not though. I don't. I don't know. Well, let me be bluntly honest here. I would rather watch chubby white dudes play golf than I would super fit white dudes play golf. So I don't know what that means, but these folks annoy me. So 
Yeah, I, I'm with you. That's a fair statement. I didn't. I didn't watch very much. I saw the. I saw the scores after the first round. I was like, well, I guess I'm not watching much of it this weekend. Yeah. Um, so. But what were you paying attention to? Um, so there is a an article on Kotaku, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of that. Um, that really captivated me in the esports world. Um, kind of talking about the bubble that exists there mm-hmm. and the massive amounts of money that are pouring into it, even though no one even really knows how to make money off of it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there are massive teams that are bringing in and being valued at $300 million, even though they've never made more than $25 million in revenue and being, uh, you know, having to pay $30 million a year to be part of leagues and paying massive salaries for folks that we're not really sure what they're valued at. Um, really an interesting kind of cautionary tale in some ways, like is what we're seeing with esports going to be uh, a situation like arena football where it blows up and then kind of overextends itself and kind of dies down? Or is it going to be something that continues to grow like we think it is? Um, and both an interesting in the sense of investment capital and how that flows in this country, but also just what esports is going to be moving forward. Hmm. It makes me think too about the changing nature of gaming and and how Hmm. quickly it changes and what that would mean for investing in something and and how quickly something else can catch on, uh, at least in the history of esports. But, it also makes me think of how interesting I've found that a lot of universities now are offering full scholarships for esports mm-hmm. uh, and kind of following the money in that direction and seeing what comes of it. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting one. One that interests me mainly because I don't understand it. And so, well, I was gonna. Do you ever envision yourself like waking up on a Saturday morning excited to watch esports? No, um, yeah, but there is like, and that's the question in my mind is like, what is that number? And so that's mm-hmm. part of part of the point this article is talking about is that these numbers are way inflated in terms of viewership. Um, and so, like, you know, somebody will run an article, like Forbes will run an article. More people watched League of Legends uh, championship than watched the Super Bowl. It's like, well, that's super complex, and that's comparing apples to oranges, and you know, it's just not uh, the way that that should be viewed. And yet those are the kind of numbers that are being put out. And on the flip side, like, so it's viewed as this bubble then that all these people are investing in. But, you know, I have a healthy belief in the fact that um, there's a bunch of folks and companies that have too much money and don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they continue to prop up things like this. And so I don't know how long it'll last, but you know, the revenue numbers that are suggesting that it's going to make money by 2022 are ridiculous. Uh, but if somebody's going to stick in until 2030, then there may be, there may be a way to make that work. My inexplicable recent interest in racing comes to the forefront here <laughs> because, uh, I, I somehow an ad popped up of Ninja, oh, yeah. uh, and he was he's sponsored by Red Bull and he was going to ride in a drift car with some Red Bull drifting racers and it, it like overwhelmed me 
Like I was like, what? What is happening? What? What? What is this? I I, could, I had trouble even describing what it was, and then it it led me to thinking about that ESPN long piece that came out maybe last year on Ninja, and the one thing that I came away from that article with that I haven't forgotten is that when he's not online, he's constantly obsessively watching his followers numbers and how they're going up and down. And so if he's not online for like 12 hours, he can lose like a hundred thousand followers. And that would essentially equate to way the way he has or- orchestrated and designed his uh, revenue stream such that if he loses a hundred thousand followers, that means like that day he lost like $80,000. Uh, but if he goes up a hundred thousand, eighty thousand, a hundred thousand more dollars he made that day. I was like, this, this is a different world. <laughs> well, it is a very and, white man it, thing. <laughs> well, but it, it pinpoints one of the main problems in my mind is just the amount in, in a world where no one quite understands it, the pressure that's put on these people. Mm-hmm. And so you're right that like these folks are trying to maximize revenue streams in all areas. And I have to give them a ton of credit. Folks like Ninja and, you know, there's a hundred other folks like him. Mm-hmm. I've done incredible jobs monetizing themselves and, and from a business perspective, growing their brand. But at what cost? Um, mm-hmm. I think we see that with a lot of folks, uh, these new YouTube, Instagram celebrities, that the cost of finding that celebrity even with whatever monetary outcome you would get is just immense you know i i'm forever struck by a very famous youtube couple that um a boyfriend and girlfriend that played pranks on each other made it big like 10 Mm -hmm. million subscribers and then wound up breaking up um and just the trauma of that and even the fact that like they had had a promotional deal to go to on a trip that they wound up having to go on after they had broken up but before they could tell their subscribers about it and so like that's a such a weird dynamic and then uh, the guys come out and talked about how like he was offered a hundred plus thousand to sponsor their engagement if they ever got engaged and Mm -hmm. things like that and that's just such a weird unhealthy space that i think you know there's no doubt that i think we'll professionalize that at some point but it is a it's a scary thing in many ways at this point. Mm-hmm. I just had the vision of you and I going to a local disc golf tournament together and landing on the fact that this is the only thing that we can watch. <laughs> Being like six, 69 years old and walking around a disc golf course <laughs> together. <laughs> oh. I can see us... Uh, sponsoring neighborhood bike races yeah, amongst exactly. the kids. Like, <laughs> exactly. We need sports to watch. <laughs> Come on, Tommy. You got him. <laughs> Hello. Oh, uh, well, well, shall we talk about Sports Illustrated? Let's do it. Yeah, so this week uh, we dug into the the grand old dame. Sports Illustrated been around for many, many years. Um and what was kind of your experience? This is not one that you regularly checked, I believe, right, Kyle? It's not. It was interesting, too, because I found myself uh, struck by nostalgia. Hmm. And that came from a place wherein Sports Illustrated, for me, was massive in my childhood. And 
it came in two ways. One was Sports Illustrated Kids, which came out in 1989, so I would have been six years old when it came out. And getting that in the mail as a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve year old was the ultimate. Um, it, it, it was that National Geographic Kids that like I looked forward to most. Um, and like I can still remember the first cover with Michael Jordan on the cover. And it, it it was a seminal moment in my childhood. So the Sports Illustrated Kids was big for me. And then also, once I started looking at Sports Illustrated, uh, probably as like a 10, 11, 12-year-old, and it was all about the photos and how prominent Sports Illustrated originally was in uh, sports photojournalism. And uh, reading a little bit about their history this week, too, showed me that that was uh, something that they latched onto quickly and realized that it was something that was extremely marketable. Uh, and then it wasn't until high school, I think, when I started to really pay attention to their longer form journalism, which also from reading their history, it was like those were their two angles was uh, longer form think pieces and photojournalism. And so going back to that this week, I, I enjoyed flipping through uh, their photography section and that they sing, single that out as a drop down tab. Uh, I, I found interesting. I, I can't imagine that. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. But maybe there are a lot of other people out there that go to Sports Illustrated's website uh, just for photos or still subscribe uh, for photos, but that's what the magazine was for me growing up. So in that way, it led me to kind of this nostalgic feeling. Hmm. Um, but I, we'll get into some more of the other stuff uh, elsewhere. But um, how how often are you on Sports Illustrated's website? Well, I check probably once a week, um, which is interesting. This week, spending more time on there. How that's probably not going to change. Um, mm-hmm. In that. Uh, the stuff they have is really good, but it, it doesn't cycle through nearly as frequently as ESPN. And so you can go once a week and still get what you need to get from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I do want to give them a ton of credit that I think uh, my favorite part of digging a little deeper into this was the SI vault. Um, Same. Same. Um, which I think just brings up these questions that I don't think I had kind of understood before, but I think you could make a big argument that Sports Illustrated created the sports media that you and I love, which is yes. these think pieces, these longer form, you know, this one that they've got up ahead on their vault right now about King Griffey Jr. and his dad, you know, bringing up, coming up together. Like those stories, that's the stuff that I eat up and have always eaten up. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just, uh, I love. Uh, that stuff being there and so I, I have to give them a ton of credit for kind of creating that world even if they can't quite keep up in the in the modern space yeah and so even to back to my nostalgia point and i i think i could unpack it for myself uh, more but i think sports illustrated in high school was something that brought my friend group together hmm. um just to share it in the it, it was um it was, it was the space in which I learned that by giving time to a long-form piece and also by having opinions on writers was something that led to like social capital hmm. uh, in the world I grew up in. 
And so in that way, I, I found that interesting to kind of think and ruminate on a little bit. Um, uh, m- most significantly would be Rick Riley, and we can yeah. probably talk more about him here in a minute. But uh, at any rate, it had uh, a massive part of my childhood, and I, I, I'm like you. I, I probably go once a week, probably maybe even less than that, and can still get what I need from it. Well, it raises, you know, this, uh, I'm going to make a huge hot take right now. So get it. Pre- prepared for this. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that the fall, not necessarily the fall, but the diminishing importance of Sports Illustrated uh, is playing an outsized role on the popularity of baseball in this country. Mm. Um, I think that for me, the way I enjoyed baseball growing up was not watching it, but just following it from afar and then having these amazing Sports Illustrated stories on the players that helped me get into it. And the fact mm-hmm. that that's not how we engage with the sport anymore, I think makes baseball less appealing mm-hmm. than some of the other faster paced sports. Um, that you're right, that like taking that time to dig into a story with Sports Illustrated and this, that pace was just so perfectly suited in my mind for baseball and is now... Uh, I wonder if that's uh, the if they're commingled or even a Sports Illustrated helped baseball prolong itself in some ways in the in the psyche. And the generation that's still watching baseball was the generation that paid for Sports Illustrated subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they would be interested. In, I, I'm sure we could find it of who and what their readership is, but I would have to mean believe that it's older. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, at least in their getting their print publication for sure. Yeah, exactly. You you want to rank them? Yeah. So let's um you know our first thing here we've got quality of articles, essays, journalism, and we've ranked them at a sixteen, which is actually slightly higher than ESPN. And I, you know, I think there's a real argument to be made that their consistency is really quite good here. Yeah, and I, as mentioned, or as you as you mentioned, um, some of these writers for ESPN are more than household names. They created the house. Uh, I think that long form journalism can sit within, and so in that way, a lot of the writing that you and I really value and enjoy and find a lot of entertainment uh, within is uh, what Sports Illustrated kind of made mainstream, which is these longer form pieces. So in that way, they still have that. Uh, and it's still some of the best writing in sports, I think. Well, and I do, um, there's an interesting dilemma as well that I f- both enjoy their long form stuff, which I consistently find good. I mean, so right now on the homepage, they've got an article on wrestling of all things, which I don't care about in the least. And yet I feel fairly confident that if I were to read that article, I'd find it interesting, which I mm-hmm. can't say about ESPN. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, one of the things that I enjoy most is that they were, and I have kind of forgotten this before, but they kind of were the first folks to do these hot clicks and train us thoughts and these kind of list things where you find these weird stories and, you know, highlighting the fact that Charles Barkley talked about how he would have punched Drake in the face and things like that. Uh, And I actually really enjoyed that kind of finding weird and little things to laugh at or enjoy from the broader sports world, which I have to give them some credit for, for that, that they, um, you know, I feel like every time I've looked on it this week and even going back before then, that there's something on those lists that I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I haven't seen that yet. Right. 
Right. So that's that also made me think about their drop down or their side page of the mustard. Yeah, the extra mustard. Yeah. The extra mustard. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't know that existed before this week. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, in my only one week of paying attention to it, it seems to me like a pretty cheap version of the of Grantland now the Ringer page two. Uh, mm-hmm. This mixing of pop culture and sports, but it I found it to be a less than half-hearted attempt to match what the <laughs> websites like The Ringer are doing. Uh, it, it just didn't the content on there just didn't land for me. Interesting. I find it that's because I find it better in some ways because I don't I don't know why, but The Ringer and some of those other places feel like they try too hard maybe or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but yeah. Maybe it's the nostalgia piece of it in some ways, too. The, yeah, yeah, I think that could be the case. Um, what about diversity of voices? So we uh, didn't rate them particularly high on this. I mean, higher than I think we'll find a lot of folks down the road. But we gave them a 15, which puts them in the, the Andy Murray category of not quite at the top. But um, it's uh, I think they've got a wide diversity, but they don't quite have the big names i think that are diverse voices in some ways uh, mm-hmm. does that make sense um, yeah and i think too of uh i've th- this is not like uh, uh this is a very like um how should i put it pretty cheap way of gauging something <laughs> but no one has ever sent me a sports illustrated article and sent it with the intention of saying, look at this really incendiary piece out of Sports Illustrated that's like rocking the sports world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that way, they uh, can engage with um, diverse voices, but somehow make it seem as if it's kind of vanilla at the same time. Um, well, I think yeah, I guess is my impression. Yeah, I think I, I frame that a little bit differently and give them, I guess, a little bit more credit because I kind of view it as... Sports Illustrated's strength is storytelling. I think that there's an argument to be made that they've made the decision that storytelling means we don't take, we don't mm. do incendiary things. Um, we don't do Stephen A. Smith stuff. Yeah. Well, and even like, so what, who was it? Uh, Jack, Jackie McMullen freaking laid into Magic Johnson this past week, which, my goodness, if we, we need to unpack that at some point, but um, yeah. Magic Johnson needs to be laid into. Yeah. Um, and yet that same, you know, she put something on there like his his stuff was easy to deal with, dot, 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 as a player. And I was like, ooh, like that's a mm. low-key, harsh mm-hmm. burn. And the Jackie McMullen, who I think you and I both have huge respect for, feels yeah. like she can do that on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sports Illustrated, I think, is more like, we'll, we're going to tell you the story and dig in deep right. into the background, but we're not going to we're not going to lean in any particular direction on this. Right. Um, it also makes me think of SITV, and I know nothing about SITV. I don't know anyone that pays for it. No. <laughs> um, I can't imagine anyone paying for it. I'm fascinated that it exists and they're putting that much money and effort into it. Uh, it seems like a losing venture on every level. Uh, at any rate, yeah, that um, Sports Illustrated for me has never been a place to go get hot takes, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's interesting because I think you and I both are not huge fans of hot takes. Right, right. But at the same time, there's a certain value to having a take, even if it's not a... Mm. I mean, we want 
um, we want Sarah Spain there that's going to tell the story, right. but we know that there's a depth to that story and a willingness. I think this goes into the next one in some ways. That, yeah, um, go ahead. So the next one is political engagement, and we've we've graded them out just a little bit higher at 12 versus ESPN LS11. I think that's partly because um, as much as ESPN is willing to go to those places, I think the storytelling allows ESPN to, or Sports Illustrated to go to some spaces with that without being takey about it. And yet mm-hmm. it's not... Um, the takey side of things often seems bland when you boil it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting, like, where do we want takes and where don't we want takes on these things is mm-hmm. is interesting. And there are some voices at Sports Illustrated that I've paid attention to, namely is Charles Pierce. Mm-hmm. And Charles Pierce is uh, very much engaged politically, and he often doesn't write without a political angle. Uh, and that he writes from a very leftist viewpoint, I think, is uh, significant. And the other thing that stuck out to me or has always stuck out to me is the Muhammad Ali Legacy Award. Mm. Uh, I, I seem to always pay attention to that to some extent. And so that Colin Kaepernick was the recent recipient. I was like willing to say, OK, this is some level of political engagement. Well, I think I want to give ESPN some credit here, too, for their... Um you know, part of their drop-down tab is about um, sports media. They have a whole, essentially, subcategory of sports mm-hmm, media stuff, mm-hmm. which I find to be really interesting. And I almost always find those articles super uh, well done. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that gives them – they're in this space where they're, in some ways, the neutral voice, that I don't think that people will get – mad at Sports Illustrated on either direction because I think they've taken that storytelling piece and maybe that allows them to be a little more blunt and a little more um, uh, not necessarily that they're going to tell you you know Trump is terrible but that they can write an article about the world of sports under Trump Um, because I mean Rick Riley who you know we mentioned earlier freaking laid into Trump uh, (laughs) recently uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw this book, but um, that that that's somehow more acceptable in that space uh, as coming from that SI background than it would be coming from an ESPN background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about uh, enjoyment of visiting? Which, by the way, if you haven't did, read these Rick Riley stories about how Trump cheats at golf, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, so I, I was going to wait to talk about Rick Riley. <laughs> All right. um, we can wait on that then. All right. <laughs> uh, do you enjoy going to the website? Uh, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I don't not enjoy it. Obviously, I go regularly, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not a fun visit necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to navigate to where you want to go to um, mm-hmm. in the same way that ESPN is. The one thing I'll give them credit for is this little writer's tab that they have. Yeah, which consistently I know if I'm going to read something there, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the one place. The rest of it is often bad stuff, and you know, they put this freaking sports uh, swimsuit thing in here, which is just a little perturbing every time you go past it. And, and then they've yep. got the SITV, which again, you're like, what? What is this? Why is this here? Right. Um, in addition to all the banners, which we'll talk more about yeah. too. Well, we'll yeah. Exactly. Um. um yeah, same. I I've, I never, I, I 
I don't think I ever like go to it with planning to experience entertainment. Uh, I go to it wondering if I can find an article here or there that is going to interest me. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that's how I always approach the website and often leave kind of disappointed um, after, after like a first scroll through the homepage and maybe one or two drop downs and then not finding something. Uh, I'm often kind of like, okay, that was my SI for two weeks kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it feels a little old in the tooth in some Mm -hmm. ways. Um, Well, and for me that links to the next criterion of notoriety of talent. mm -hmm. And when I was reading sports illustrated more regularly, it was because of Rick Riley and it was because of Dan Jenkins uh, and even before that was Frank DeFord. Uh, and so that all three of them aren't there anymore, uh, I, th- I think has been just for me personally a, a significant loss. But we have them at a 15. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and so in that way, it's, um, I mean, to be a Sports Illustrated writer, I think still carries a massive amount of weight uh, in in the sports journalism world. Uh, the name that comes to mind for me is Tom Verducci, uh, but that also is harking back to what you were saying about baseball. So he's seen as one of the like preeminent baseball writers in the world, um, but I've never gone to SI to read a Tom Verducci story. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I know that he is like the baseball writer, uh, but for me growing up, Rick Riley was uh, my introduction to a different way of viewing sports albeit what I look at it now, a way of viewing sports that I've come to not value, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so Rick Riley introduced me to the uh, kind of um, the context or the uh, a different paradigm through which to view sports. So in that, I'll give him credit, but I think he uh, ultimately, I'm going to go ahead and use a strong word, is I think Rick Riley is kind of despicable. Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't value what he has to say all that much anymore. Um, he I, he seems to fall right in the heart of kind of like a thinking bro. Uh, and I, I think he is really proud of himself and loves himself and thinks that he is um, the reason for his success. Uh, and so in that way, I, I, I don't love Rick Riley. Um, whereas Dan Jenkins, I think, was... Um, a little bit more thoughtful even to the end of his life about who and what he was and how he presented himself to the world. Interesting. Yeah. I don't have the same hate for Riley that you do, but I do think it's a, he served a point of being, uh, I mean, to me it was an introduction to snark and sports Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and like that you can take it seriously, but you need to recognize the, um, when it's not serious. And I think that there's an argument to be made that when he went to ESPN, that, that he lost that, um, mm-hmm. he lost that funness. And I think that that's, uh, that's kind of what drove me away from it, that I was no longer interested once you see that there's not a depth behind it. And so it's, it's similar in some ways to me to like, he was writing satire without a point to make at the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. similar to my, very strong, high takey feelings about David Sedaris, who I <laughs> despise. Um, but we can get into you that. You despise David Sedaris? I do. So this is um, 
uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say this on our G-rated uh, podcast, but I view Sedaris as writing masturbatory prose that uh, David Sedaris is like, look at how good I can write. I have nothing to say, but look how good I can write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my feeling about him. So, mm-hmm. uh, Which I really annoys me that he's gotten the credibility that he has. Anyway, we'll get off of this. <laughs> totally... <laughs> sidetrack conversation but yeah i understand <laughs> um i will say that's interesting that um you know there's some voices there that you know before i kind of gave up on football peter king was a major voice in the football one of the, one of the only ones that i enjoyed reading his monday morning quarterback and all that stuff but he's now gone um mm-hmm. Grant Wall is about the only person left that's a name that I resonate with, but his stuff is almost, I just, I couldn't find it almost even as I was looking for stuff, um, which is a little telling in some ways. And I think that, I don't know whether he's diminished or whether Sports Illustrated, him sticking with Sports Illustrated means that he's diminished in that role um, or what, but it's just interesting that those are the few voices left that uh, I, I cared about there. Right. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I I think the loss of Riley Jenkins to Ford, um, the the Ford being the big one for me. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm resisting the urge to say more bad things about Rick Riley. So we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'll give him credit for writing this book about Trump, even though it's this huge self uh, self promotional tool. Uh, anything that makes me enjoy that moment of reading about Trump cheating at golf yeah. is a, a little fun in my mind. So yeah. Well, here's what I will say: is I I think so. When Rick Riley moved to ESPN, they were doing a lot of video pieces with him, and it was a major. I don't remember when that happened. I want to say we were in college, and it was a, an illuminating moment for me personally that these uh white men i had been reading my whole life that when you see them on video you realize that they're not great people Mm. even though they're pros and the way in which they can describe a sporting event evoked certain feelings in me that were really strong and powerful so they had that power to overtake me in what they were writing in these magazines that i was just devouring and obsessing over and when I saw him on screen, I was like, I don't like that person. Hmm. And and so for me, it, it was a young, you know, being 19 years old and kind of seeing that was another personal anecdotal thing here. But um, a, a moment of realization for me. And I think the culminating moment of that, sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, his hot take on Tiger Woods when Tiger w- was going through all the scandal his literal thesis was, and I remember reading it and just being so shocked that he wasn't backing off of it and that it wasn't snark, was that Tiger Woods is cheap and that's the reason Tiger was dealing with all these problems. It was not that, and so it was Tiger's inability to effectively cover up the scandal that was what was alarming to Rick Riley. Uh, It wasn't that any of these things had happened. Oh my, yeah. Yeah. So it was in that space that I was like, hmm, okay. But SI's relationship with advertising, uh, we have them at a 13. You mentioned that a lot of the banners are pretty obnoxious. Yeah, so, I mean, they don't have the same number of videos. 
Um, although they do have annoying videos that autoplay mm-hmm. uh, when you go to an article. But um, these banner ads, man, they're just... Uh, they're like one of the few things that really gets me agitated in some ways. So, yeah, I mean, there's just like, you know, here right now when I'm looking at it, the banner ad on the top just changed from HGTV to Tuft and Needle, which I don't know what that even is, uh, but <laughs> yeah. something on Amazon. And I'm just like, I don't care about any of that crap. Yeah. And the fact that like they've made it a separate color, you know, it's like the it's a gray is versus the white background of the articles and that there's just these glaring, there don't seem to be any guidelines in terms of what, um, what needs to be in them or limitations on what can be in them. And I think that's all, that all speaks to me of, uh, something I don't enjoy being on in an old fashioned way of handling them. Well, I will add to this in real time. I just tried to click on an article and I accidentally clicked on a Warby Parker ad. So now I'm on Warby Parker's website. Well, you which, probably do need some new glasses, Kyle. Come on now. Well, that might be true. Um, but that might be one of my all-time hates is when oh, yeah. the screens shift and oh, it leads me to awful. clicking on something. <laughs> uh, so um, that might have made me put them at a one now just for that one singular moment that's how pissed i am right now there is a you know there is an argument to be made that if you don't like the way that they're handling advertising um what you're supposed to uh i forget what you're supposed to do about it but there's a way to actively protest that so you might want to investigate okay some of those tools but anyway I think I want to be clear here before we go on any further, though, that I am not a person that has ad blocker installed on my computer, mainly because I recognize that these are free things that we're getting and that somebody mm-hmm. has to pay for them, and I want the advertisers to pay for them instead of us. Right. Um, and so I'm okay with there being ads on here. I just want them to be handled in a different manner. Um, so that's just... Yep. That's I'm 100% with you. All right, next up, coverage of non-mainstream sports. Very low this time. I think we probably started ourselves off in a bad place by going so low on ESPN, who are probably going to be the highest of any. Yeah. Uh, But we've got them at a five. They do have some tennis coverage and some odd things, but really to get most of the other stuff, you have to go to that extra mustard section, which uh, often means you're looking at a humorous take on it, which is often not. Uh, a serious examination of those sports, which I think diminishes that in some ways. So, yeah, and I, I would add that I w- I've never gone to Sports Illustrated expecting non-mainstream sports. No. Yeah, it's the they're so football heavy. Even yeah, even you know their top story right now is ESP or uh, NBA, but there's still when you scroll down, you can see how football heavy mm-hmm. it is in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. So. Was SI sustainable? So we've got them at a 15, which we think probably more than most, but we're a little more unsure than we are about ESPN. You know, they do have capital that a lot of these other folks don't have. You know, the fact that they are doing SI TV, which we really don't understand why, Mm -hmm. uh, is interesting. Um, They do have the magazine, which I think uh, the magazine world is changing, but I think they're probably still have a stability from that in many ways. Um, mm. um, and, and the name is, their their name recognition is yeah. 
second only to ESPN, I would say, right? Well, and I think second for folks that are under 40 and first perhaps for folks over 40 in some ways. Yeah. I might argue. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think they're going anywhere in our lifetime. I I, I think they'll stay around for for some time. But like you said, I mean, the magazine world changes so quickly and holistically is on hard times. Mm -hmm. and. We might could say more about that when we get to ownership. Well, it's but. it's interesting though. I I might push back a little bit on that and say like holistically, it's it's not the magazine industry is not making money where it used to in terms of mm. uh, subscriptions. But there are now places. So let's take an example of Real Simple, which we for some reason get delivered every month to our house, mm-hmm. and I don't ever remember signing up for. But also things like family and things like this that we've gotten since we've had kids that um there's a lot of folks out there that have realized that subscriptions don't matter anymore it's just creating content and then selling advertising Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in that way i think that the magazine industry is in some ways as healthy as any media industry is at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, it's all dependent upon advertisers having too much money and not knowing what to do with it but uh, there's a lot of that right now I'll point out that Real Simple is a Meredith Corporation <laughs> magazine, as is Sports Illustrated. Um, social capital, is SI good for the world? So, um, uh, we actually downgraded this, didn't we? Although we haven't quite, uh, yeah. we haven't quite come to a number on this. But I think... Um, uh, you know, I think their long-form stuff puts them in a decent space, and yet the big drawback, I think, from our perspective, and we can dig into this more, is that they still seem to be so heavy into this uh, swimsuit issue, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know what kind of revenue we're talking about from that, but in terms of notoriety, it's certainly a big part of how they are where they are. So I think I found, uh, this is via Wikipedia, that... They uh, make $34 million profit on the swimsuit edition each year. Hmm. Um, I don't know how meaningful that number is other than um, that seems like a lot to make off one issue of a magazine. Uh, And um, yeah, there's more than 100 reasons of why it's problematic, right? Um, yeah. in that it it seems like too that um, any defenses I've read or heard of uh, the issue are along the lines of like uh, empowerment and things like that but to pair it with a magazine that has historically subscribed to by 95% men uh, it, it's hard to come away with any conclusion other than selling the female body uh, and so in that way what, what do we do with it other than <laughs> to say this probably isn't a very great thing well and there's a um it's interesting i was reading here before, uh, that they've you know they were recently bought by this meredith corp um and time inc publications as part of that group as well and that um excuse me meredith corp is a does a number of family-based things, and so there's some question as to how they're going to handle and what they think about the Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. swimsuit issue anyway. Um, it, but it's, it seems like it may be a moot issue because they're looking to sell Sports Illustrated soon. But even within that, it's noteworthy that there's been some uh, things with female staffers being 
unhappy about the um, uh, the thing anyway, particularly because Time Inc. continues to give them out to every Time employee, um, mm-hmm. including one employee saying, quote, she found it under her door, a beautifully laid out publication of porn. Who decided I wanted to look at a hundred some pages of barely addressed women with ads of slate and boobs that defy reason? Can't imagine that will survive the Me Too era at right. another source. And so right. uh, I don't, I'm not going to go there because I think we've seen that, you know, as this week, I think it comes out that what's his name? Uh, the guy, oh gosh, what's his name? Weinstein has mm-hmm. reached a settlement with his accusers. I think we were going to see that this is not what we want it to be, as we saw right. with many of these movements. And so uh, I'm hesitant to think it'll go anywhere, but it's certainly not something that we think should be prized. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that it's also, you know, I think I would feel differently about it too if it wasn't so front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, like if, there's no need for them to have the third or even just it's the second after the second banner ad, they have their swimsuit stuff that you can go down and look at. And there's just no need for that to be there. Um, Right. Unless it's what's driving most of the attention. And if that's the case, then you have some serious issues elsewhere. Right. Right. That's how I always take it is a, a signal of serious issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of like oh your your model can't work without this um meaning like how you structure your magazine and your corporation can't work without this and if that is the case then what is this that i am reading um and so it it, it puts uh, an asterisk by almost every single thing on the site for me to be mm-hmm. honest yeah yeah and so as much as i think we love the journalism there's some real questions mm-hmm. i think about that what that yeah. means and you know it, how long that will survive oh mm-hmm. gosh i'm just imagining the trump response when sports illustrated decides to cut the swimsuit issue it's pretty easy to imagine <laughs> well, I, it's yeah. very easy to imagine it's just yeah. not very much fun to go to that space yeah yeah um yeah i i do want to bring up i guess that um Serena Williams engaging with it, mm-hmm. uh, it always would confuse to me. Um, and it, it, I just share that very vulnerably of, of like an ignorance of, of all that goes into that. Um, and, and, and I guess I point that out just to say that the, the swimsuit issue is just such a, a significant part in some ways of kind of, in my opinion, um, our really broader culture in America in that it, it's everyone knows it exists. Uh, it, it's probably one of the more famous outlets, I think, um, uh, for, for selling female sexuality and physicality, uh, as a product to be bought. Um, and that Serena Williams engages with it has always, I, it's thrown me off. I don't. I don't know what else to say, and that I'm ignorant of where to go next with the conversation. Well, I think this is where I'm thankful to to not have quite the same. As much as I love Serena, I don't have quite the same qualms in saying, um, you know, you do you, but I still mm-hmm. think it's a bad thing um, mm-hmm. in some ways. Especially, I think because I think I can compare it to. Um, 
and this is don't get me wrong i think espn's decision to do the body issue was probably done for all of the wrong reasons mm-hmm. um but that at the same time when you juxtapose those two next to each other mm-hmm. it's a clear one that i think we want to celebrate and one that we want to right. do away with yeah yeah they are different yeah. um yeah but what about ownership responsibility? We've mentioned that they're owned by Meredith Corporation, which is a Warner Media subsidiary, which is a subsidiary of AT&T. Um, <laughs> so a whole lot of corporate <laughs> reach here. Yes. So as with all this crap, it's uh, you know, it's hard to know what any of it means, but I do mm-hmm. think that we've decided to grade them at an 8, which puts them... Uh, same place as ESPN, just because we have trouble, I think, distinguishing between these corporations, which we're all uncomfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, uh, we know that there are some that are probably worse than others. I know my dad used to boycott Shell for years. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, um, I've always been like, well, all of them do the same thing. Why is Shell right. so bad? Um, but it's interesting. You know, I It's just hard to know especially from the outside how evil some of these corporations are and i have no problem really in calling them that Um, right and so i think we just have to say anything that's owned by these bigger places is in not a good space yeah i'm similar if it's nearly impossible for me to find out if you're good or not (laughs) I'm, i'm i'm gonna give you a low score yeah right um, well, I think that there, you know, we'll we'll get into this later, but I think that there are ways, like, I mean, I think we would probably, we'll probably wind up putting the ringer a little bit higher on this list because they're more independently owned and operated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the flip side, you've got someone like um, Deadspin, which we'll get to, which I think you and I might um, grade even lower than ESPN because even though they don't, might not have the same corporate backing, evil corporation stuff, they have some really more questionable easily identifiable stuff in there so it's a um you, you know i i think it comes down to in some ways that we don't necessarily think that these corporations are intentionally setting out to cause evil but that they in the very doing of what they're designed to do cause major problems with society mm-hmm. well in, even more so like I, I would compare it to something like uh the nation um and so a media outlet that has a far reach and is very available and capable for anyone to go read, uh, and they very actively avoid any um, any sort of business alliance with any corporation that they don't deem <laughs> uh, fits their value system. Uh, so in that way, like uh, they literally operate on donations, similar to the Guardian. Um, so there are other options, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I guess to point out that some of these media outlets that we're looking at exist to make money for in the first place. Uh, yeah. And so that that's, I think, the justification for a really low score. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this puts us, for them, uh, all total at a 120 below uh, ESPN's 137. Uh, we'll see where that racks up long term, but... Any final thoughts on Sports Illustrated? I think I'll go back to my once every two weeks. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think I'm in that same space. I might spend a little more time on that extra mustard stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't 
probably not for very long. Um, yep, same. But uh, well, tell me about this coming week. What are you paying attention to? Man? Champions League final uh, on Saturday: Tottenham versus Liverpool. I wish it wasn't two English clubs. Uh, at any rate, I love the Champions League, um, and so it's not an ideal final, but uh, I'm, I'll still be excited about it. I, I love that it comes down to one game. Um, yeah, it, it's just exciting. Um, so I'll, I'll forget about all the bad things in the world, hopefully, for like 90 minutes and enjoy it. I mean, but the problem, Kyle, is that Tottenham I is one of the bad things in the world. I knew you were going to ruin it for me. Don't ruin it for me. <laughs> just let me watch it. <laughs> Tottenham is awful. All you Tottenham fans can suck an egg. Um. You're not revealing yourself as an Arsenal fan at no, all right not now? not at all. Not at all, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, what about you? Um, well, since you took that, I'll go, uh, NBA finals this week. Um, and the excitement and joy that has been watching this Warriors team without Kevin Durant that we'll see for at least one more game, it looks like, mm-hmm. um, and potentially more, uh, man, it's just been so exciting. You know, I, I, um, some of the folks that I listen to and pay attention to have talked about how they still don't enjoy watching the Warriors even with KD gone because it's still a foregone conclusion. And I kind of have to say that, you know, maybe it's because I enjoy soccer so much that that's never bothered me. Um, Cause I mean, we know at the beginning of this year, we knew that Man City was most likely going to win the premier league. I mean, it was right. just uh, with their team, it became a foregone conclusion. And so I'm kind of used to those in some ways, but I can still enjoy the beauty of that game. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, when I look at um, this Golden State team, yes, it may be a foregone conclusion. Yes, there may be, you know, some uh, tiredness of watching it. But, man, it's just basketball played the way it's supposed to be played, and I really enjoy watching mm-hmm. that. Especially after even watching Kawhi in the Eastern Conference go one on one over and over and over again, I'm like man, I just want to see a team that plays as a team um, yep. and enjoy that. I'm gonna agree with a lot of other people. Uh, I think they're better uh, without it, <laughs> uh, and I, I think my to be more specific about that, I think it opens up space for Draymond Green to take on more leadership. And if Draymond uh, yeah. Green's taking on more leadership on your team, then your team's going to be really freaking good because that guy is incredible. Uh, I, I, what he did in that last series, I, what Steph and Clay are capable of is exceptional, and it's really pretty. But what Draymond Green does to a basketball team is have more of an, of an effect, I think, than I, I, in my opinion, it, it's just like, yeah, for. Golden State to be great, they need Stephen Clay, but they Stephen Clay aren't Stephen Clay without Draymond Green. Um, and so in that way, I think without the Marcus Cousins and Kevin Durant, Draymond had more space. And so I thought they were better, more fun to watch, and I would put more money on them if I gambled when KD wasn't on the court, which is bizarre. <laughs> well, it really is. I mean, this guy's the second best player, arguably right yep. now the best player in the NBA, and yet yep. His team, I think you, you're arguing what I agree with, which is that they're better. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I just they would run these side pick and rolls with Draymond and Steph, mm-hmm. and there's just no way to stop that because Draymond is so good on that roll. It's amazing. Um, yep. When I think it's revealing that Steph, I, I think we criminally undervalue 
how good Steph Curry is. Yeah. Um, that he, I was reading something that puts put him in like this third tier of all time superstar. I'm like, I don't know that I buy that. This guy has changed the way that we play basketball. Yeah. And if you look at his plus minus stats, there's nobody better. Even with KD on the team, he's the one that's determining the plus minus right. uh, on things, and he's the one that's giving everybody else space to work. And yeah. does it with such consistency and such amazing, uh, yeah, it's just so good. And then Draymond, you're right. Like the way he's rolling, you know, we, I think I forget who I was watching uh, a different series where they were running the same play, that side pick and roll. Mm-hmm. And w- Draymond makes it look so natural, but it's just not, you just, it, nobody else can do what he's doing. There is a real expertise to it. And it's really subtle, but, um, not only that, and you're going to like this. Um, I couldn't help but think during that series of watching how hard Draymond was playing and think of LeBron mm. and think of how not only does LeBron have the same skill set as Draymond Green, but LeBron's skill set is like far more expansive and he has a higher capacity than Draymond. And so what would it look like if LeBron James played as, played as oh hard as Draymond Green plays? Oh my goodness. Right? Like that that then is where I'm like, oh, that's what it would look like of what the best player in the world would look like. Because you have Draymond's body and you can do everything Draymond can do. You just don't try as hard as he does. Um so I, I, I had that thought during the series and found that kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. But Well, I do have to confess that as much as I don't want to be one that feeds into the um the stories around these kind of things that I must admit to immensely enjoying the Lakers situation. <laughs> uh, you know what all this is making me think is uh, just for our real own enjoyment, we need like a a, a three-hour NBA podcast where <laughs> everything we're not seeing but wish we could talk more about all things NBA. <laughs> I, mean, I really want to talk about I know, I know. Magic Johnson signing <laughs> Rajon Rondo, Michael Beasley, and yeah. JaVale McGee, and then taking a six-week vacation, and then complaining about people talking about him not working hard enough. Yeah. Like, it's just amazing. I want to talk about that so much. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Magic. It's over. Well... We'll wrap it up there. Um, Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with a new sports platform, a media platform to talk about. But in the meantime, uh, shoot us any questions you might have, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Kyle.